I'm excited to be able to step into this series because I think there's a lot in the life of Daniel that we'll be able to relate to, understand, because I, I don't know if you've ever felt this way. Have you ever been in a situation where you felt as out of place as possible? That if everything was one way, you were the other. Uh, I mean, it could be in any circumstance that you were the one that felt left out. Anybody ever felt that before besides me? Okay, good. Most of us have felt that before where it, it just doesn't fit. And you're like, what do I do? And what's really unique about that situation and, you know, the amount of studies that have been done are absurd, how easy and quickly it is when you are left out of something and you feel like the oddball to step into it to say, I will just adapt to everything around me so that I can kind of lay low under the radar and just go with the flow. And, and you know, we become like those around us. And what's great is that when we look at the life of Daniel, we're going to find someone who kind kind of wrestled through that himself as, and, and how did he survive in a culture that was completely different? Because let's just be very honest and upfront to begin with. If you're here and you have dedicated your life to Jesus and said, I'm going to follow him and his teachings, you and I are in a bit of a different place because we have a culture, we have certain commands and teachings from Jesus that are very opposite to the world that we are living in. Wouldn't you agree? It looks a little bit different. And so the question that we have to ask is, how can we survive in a world that looks so different from what we know is true from what Jesus says? How can we thrive when it's constantly changing around us? Now, over the next three weeks, we're going to find some keys to surviving and thriving in, you know, the world that we live in. And we're going to look at that as like the way that Daniel, uh, he, I'll tell you his story in a second, but he's going to be in a city called Babylon. How did he thrive in Babylon? How did he survive this? And what did he do? And so that's what we're going to look at. Now, what's interesting is that for about three quarters of his 80 plus years, he didn't just live in Babylon. He thrived as a very, very unique Jewish follower of Yahweh. He did not match the culture that was around him at all and all the other gods. When he said, I got one true God, that's it. Everybody's like, just one? That seems boring. And there was our issue. What's interesting is he'll, we'll learn. He never forgot who he was. He never forgot who he worshiped. And he became one of the biggest blessings to the most influential, powerful uh, empires in the world at that time both the Babylonian Empire and the Persian Empire, he was a key to each of these empires' success. His story is amazing. And if you have your Bibles with you, uh, I would love for you to turn to Daniel. And his story makes up like the first six chapters, the first half of his book that is named after him. And, uh, you know, it, it's very interesting because the last half is all just some dreams and some visions that are really awkward when you read them that you're like, I don't understand any of this. But we're going to stay in the first half so we don't have to dive into the second. Does that sound good? Because that, that would get funky when we start talking about, like, dragons and, not dragons, but, like, heads and angels and things. It's just crazy, okay? It's crazy. We won't go there. But we will hit some interesting stories, some that you're familiar with, some that you're not. Um, and, and what I'd like to do is to kind of set up Daniel's story for you. So if you have your Bibles, like I said, you can 
find Daniel. It's going to be a little bit towards the right-hand side of the middle. And then I want you to put your finger there, and you're going to jump back into Jeremiah, another uh, prophet who's from the Old Testament. He's, it's one of the bigger books that you're going to find. It'll be easier. And you can jump to chapter 29 in there. Let me tell you a little bit about where Daniel's stepping into this story at, okay? Daniel is a teenager, so very similar to uh, our teenagers leading us up here today with the old guy in the middle. Um, <laughs> wait, if I just, well, if I just called you old, what's that make me? Ancient, okay. I got the gray hair to prove it. So Daniel is someone who lives in Judah, which is the bottom half of this whole nation of Israel. And um, he is a teenager who's from a very influential family in Judah. The nation itself is a bit of a hot mess. So like over the last couple hundreds of years, like in this nation, the top half Israel and the bottom half or like third, if you will, Judah, they got into this huge war and then Israel was taken over by another nation and now you got this tiny little country of Judah that's hanging out down there with its capital being Jerusalem. And over the last decades, God has continued to send prophet after prophet after prophet into this land to say, guys, come on, wake up. Like, everything you're doing is a hot mess right now. You are, you're, you're the, gosh, you're doing everything wrong, and I want to call you to what's good, but you're not paying attention to anything. Pay attention to my words. Pay attention to my commands. You're missing it. And there's a select group of people, this remnant of people that are obeying and trying to, you know, get right with God. But overall, no one wants to. I mean, they're taking idol worship and they're introducing it into where their temple is or into their homes and they're practicing that. They had this civil war that divided them, which God wants for unity there. They have uh, the ability now where they're celebrating their sexual promiscuity and sexual abuse on high levels in the middle of this nation. They're like, yeah, it's fine. No big deal. Just go for it. The political and the religious elite, you want to talk about corruption? These guys abused power at levels that are unseen. They used the authority they had, and to the poor and to the powerless, they just smothered them. I mean, injustice was happening everywhere. God is not happy. It even went to the extreme where the horrific idea of child sacrifice as part of their religious practices was happening. The nation has gotten so far off track. Wouldn't you agree? It, the prophet Ezekiel is, is his, like, I just love what he says. He kind of looks at the whole nation, and, and he actually goes, he goes, you guys, what you're practicing is even worse than the pagan nations that are around you. Like, they don't even know God, and they're looking a lot better than we are right now. Like, this is so bad, we've got to get it together. But like I said, David, or not David, Daniel and his family are kind of like, okay, we need to do this along with some others. But for the most part, no big deal, like whatevs, like, you know, God, we're your chosen people. You're, you're always going to be for us and with us. Like, you've already told us that. That's your promise. So we can really do whatever we want. We know that you'll protect us. We know that you'll do this. But what's wild is this prophet Jeremiah, who lived at the same time as Daniel, before Daniel was even born, like 20 years before he was even born, he started telling the nation, heads up, guys, if you don't get your crap together, that's the Jimmy version, if you don't get it together, Babylon's coming and they will take you over. So before it ever happened, he's giving them the heads up. If you don't repent and turn this around, Babylon's coming. 
when he says it, and God told him to say it, he kind of looks at God and he's like, ah, uh, so like Babylon? Babylon's the worst. <laughs> Babylon is the worst. No, send anybody else. Why would you send Babylon? They are one of the most wicked nations ever. And if they showed up at your doorstep, it was over. You're not winning that battle. You're not winning that war. And at the helm of this mighty nation is a guy whose name is King Nebuchadnezzar. Just say Nebuchadnezzar with me. Nebuchadnezzar. It just rolls off the tongue. Right? King Nebuchadnezzar. And King Nebuchadnezzar is a, uh, what's the best way to describe him? He's a very extreme individual. Very extreme. When he makes decisions, they're all in or not at all. Right? It's big or nothing. And he is a very, very um, influential and impactful king in history. Believe it or not, he was a, a very talented engineer, um, unbelievable architect, uh, strategist, um, a, a war hero in many ways. Like, he stood out among people. He could campaign and, and just had this strategy of taking things over. It was unreal. And as a ruler, he really held his nation together really well. Like, there was not a ton of divide in that nation. And how he did it was unique. Um, he, he's, I would say, maybe even just a very loving husband. One of the ancient wonders of the world, the hanging gardens of Babylon. King Nebuchadnezzar. That's who had this commission built and helped design it. I mean, everybody goes to see it. They write about it. It's all over. We still can't find it, but it's everywhere. It was like, wow, this guy knew agriculture to the point where he could do this for his wife. Isn't that great? What'd you do for Valentine's Day? Um, so here's what happened. When you obeyed Nebuchadnezzar, you did what he wanted. He would elevate you. He'd give you the best of the best. When you disobeyed that was pretty much it. You're dead. Extreme. Promotion, death. There were no in-betweens like, well, let's do a, uh, you know, a little PRP for you and we'll review your thing in like 20 days. None of that. Promotion, death. He's extreme. It's what he does. So when, when God says to Jeremiah, I'm going to send them to come get you, it's like, uh, anybody else? Please? Nobody else, their military is the best, and when they take people over, there's almost no one left. I don't want to do this. Like, no, anybody else, God, but that's what's going to happen. And so the Babylonians, because Judah doesn't want to do anything, they begin to make their way towards Jerusalem, the capital city. And here's what I love is, like, the size of Judah at the time shouldn't have survived over anybody. They are this tiny nation. Anyone who wanted to take them over should have been able to take them over. But God, in his great love for this nation, in his hope for them to repent and to turn, has redirected armies and stopped them, and they've gone different ways. No one's come after them this same way. And what God does in his great providence is he doesn't make Babylon come to take over Jerusalem. He just lets Babylon do what Babylon's going to do, right? A Babylonian's going to do what a Babylonian's going to do. They're looking for a nation, and this is a strategic spot. Let them go. Just go ahead. And God does not intervene, and instead, he lets them move to the city. The year is 605 BCE. They're at the walls of Jerusalem. Daniel the teenager is there. And this is how it starts in Daniel 1, the very first verse. During the third year of King Jehoiakim's reign in Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Just like the prophet Jeremiah said was going to happen, right? 
I guarantee you everybody in that city, as soon as they rolled up, stopped and went, so that's it. It's over, isn't it? We're all going to die. Jump to verse 3 with me. It says, Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of staff, to bring to the palace some of the young men of Judah's royal family and other noble families who had been brought to Babylon as captives. Select only strong, healthy, and good-looking young men, he said. Make sure that, the, that they're well-versed in every branch of learning, that they're gifted with knowledge and good judgment, and they're suited to serve in the royal palace. Train these young men in the language and the literature of Babylon. The king assigned them a daily ration of food and wine from his own kitchens, and they were to be trained for three years, and they would enter the royal service. Right? Here's what I love about Babylon. They know what they're looking for. They roll up to a city and they just don't annihilate it. They find the best of the best, the cream of the crop, and they see this kid Daniel and they're like, oh, there's something here, right? He's strong, he's healthy, he's good looking. Can I tell you something about Babylon? If you want to thrive or survive in Babylon, here's one of the key things you need to know. Even a pagan king knows quality when he sees it. Right. Even a pagan king will know quality when he sees it. Babylon is no joke, right? They are looking for the best of the best. They find it, and they bring it in. And you know what? They don't try to annihilate it. Instead, they're like, how do we elevate this? And they would give them the best education. They would teach them everything. We're talking about how to read cultures, different traditions that you need to know, how to study and, and do agriculture and astrology and astronomy. They would study religions and law and math, and they would even teach them one of the most difficult languages of the time, the Babylonian language. I'm not even going to try to say, say it because I, I would just butcher it. One of the things I love that they taught them, how to make good decisions. They taught them logic. Logic. Isn't that great? And then when you're in school... You're getting the king's food, the best of the best. Who's not going to want to be part of that? Why would you do this to these best of the best? Well, to get them ready to serve the king. The king knows quality when he sees it, and he wants it to be elevated. And the goal in all of this for the Babylonians was very, very simple. Their goal was to make sure that every exile who came in that they overtook completely forgot about their home culture and that they learned to embrace the Babylonian culture, their language, their traditions and practices. It was to remove the old culture and introduce the new culture. I mean, it makes sense, right? If you take a teenager and you take them from a place where they're starving because they're besieged by this nation, they don't have access to food, water, and you know the end is coming, and then you're like, all right, come with us. Oh, no, I'm going to die. No, 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 you're not going to die. We just see something awesome in you. Tell a teenager that. They go like this. I know. I see something awesome in you. And, and it seems like you're a little bit hindered where you were, so we're going to help you. We're going to give you a full ride to school. We're going to make sure that you're fed with the best stuff. We're going to teach you anything and everything that you want to know, the stuff that you would have never learned back home. Come on. That's a deal. That's a deal for anybody to take. Even maybe some of the parents going, yes, take my kid because they'll eat. This will be great. And, and th when you're taking care of, it's easy to go, but look at all, all the things they're doing. They couldn't do this back home, but they could do it here. And so I need to embrace this culture because it is better for me. The temptation to say what you're doing here 
is better than where I came from is very, very real. It's real. And it, it's happening. And what I love is that Jeremiah, this prophet who's still living at the time, he's still back in Jerusalem. As an older dude, he's not the cream of the crop. He's not being taken. He's actually having a really hard time in Jerusalem. And while he's there, God gives him another message. And he says, Jeremiah, there's this group of exiles, these young men and these families that have been taken, and now they're over there. I need you to write them a letter. Write them a letter and now tell them exactly how they're supposed to behave and how they're supposed to handle being in Babylon because it's going to be tough. In Jeremiah 29, which Brianna had read for us, this is the instructions for the exiles, which would have been for Daniel. In verse 4, it says, This is what the Lord of the heavens army says in Jeremiah 29. The God of Israel says to all the captives he has exiled to Babylon from Jerusalem, build homes and plan to stay. Plant gardens and eat the food they produce. Marry and have children. Then find spouses for them so that you may have many grandchildren. Multiply. Do not dwindle away and work for the peace and the prosperity of the city where I sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, for its welfare will determine your welfare. Ooh. These exiles are getting a letter from God these people taken from their land into a foreign land, and you know the first thing that God says to them? Stay. Stay. Build a house. Stay. Get your gardens going because you're going to need food to eat. And you know what? I need you to start building your family. Do not let your families dwindle away. So start getting married, building your homes, and having kids and thinking about grandkids. You're going to be here for a little while. God does not ask them in this nation to fight the system, to rebel against this nation, to the king, does he? He doesn't do that at all. Instead, he tells them, work for the peace and the prosperity of the city. He tells them to pray for the city's welfare, not its downfall. I mean, it, simply saying, he's like, if the Babylonians are doing well, you're going to be doing well. So pray for them. You live here now. This is home. And, and it, you're going to be here for a while. I just love this. Let's look at verse 8. This is what the Lord of the heavens, heavens armies, the God of Israel, says. Don't let your prophets and fortune tellers who are there in the land with you of Babylon, don't let them trick you. Don't listen to their dreams because they are telling you lies in my name. I have not sent them. All right, so Israel or Judah, take root in, in Babylon. Get, get your feet under you, but be wise about who you're listening to now because not all the voices you hear in Babylon are the right voices. Not all the people who say they're religious leaders and wise people are going to be giving you wisdom. Actually, they're magicians and they're fortune tellers and their prophets are a hot mess. None of the words that they say came from me came from me. So just you need to not listen to that. And he's giving them that heads up, right? Because they're going to start saying things. How do you know if it's from God or if it's not? And he simply says, it's not. It's not. You'll know, but it's not. And then finally, God tells them this in verse 10. This is what the Lord says. You will be in Babylon for how long? Seventy years. 
but then I'm going to come and do for you all the good things that I've promised, and I will bring you home again. Amen. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They're plans for good and not for disaster, to give you future and hope. And in those days when you pray, I will listen. If you look for me wholeheartedly, you will find me. I will be found by you, says the Lord. I will end your captivity and restore your fortunes. I will gather you out of the nations where I sent you, and I will bring you home again to your own land. Now, I can see on some of your faces, you're familiar with this passage, or at least a little bit of it, aren't you? You've heard this, and maybe you're like, but that's not the version I memorized. That's, that's, that, that, Verse 11 is not the one that's on my mug. That's not the one that's on my wall or my plaque or my shirt or my blanket, right? Jeremiah 29, 11 is this great verse that I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you hope in the future. And we love to claim that verse and we're like, yeah, he's got me in mind. No, he's got Israel in mind. That's who this is targeted to. And it kind of starts with a whole, I've got you in mind because you're going to be here for 70 years. And when it's all done in exile, I got a plan, but it's not happening now. It's happening 70 years from now. Well, that's a little bit different than we like to claim it, isn't it? Right? The context of our verses make a huge difference. And, and God, yes, he has plans for all of us, but this passage is completely pointed to a Jewish remnant, a small group of followers of Yahweh that are beginning to lose hope because the culture around them is so strong. That Babylon is right here. What am I supposed to do? And God says, stay. Stay, stay, stay. Not for a little while, but if Daniel's a teenager, he's saying to Daniel, stay for the rest of your life. Time to buckle down, build your home, and you need to start your working towards peace and prosperity in Babylon. I, I, I know that they were going to experience and that's like days, weeks, months, years where it feels like, I can't do this. I can't do this. The culture's too strong. Everything is kind of fighting against me, and I, I just can't do this anymore. And that's why I love what God says a little bit after. Like, I got plans for you. He says, listen, you're going to come to a place where you don't feel me, you don't see me. So do me a favor. You will find me when you seek me with all your heart. When you are wholeheartedly longing for me because you feel so lost. I promise you, I will always be found. I will always be found. I will not abandon you. And when it's all over, after 70 years, you will go back. You know those grandkids you've been planning for? They're going to go back home. And I'm going to restore everything to them. And so Daniel, this healthy, strong, good-looking teenager, he's part of this group who gets this letter. And he could have chalked this up as like, this is the wild ramblings of that old guy back in Jerusalem. That guy was always saying things. I don't have to listen to this. Or he can lean into this and say, you know what? Let's go. Let's start working towards the peace and prosperity of Babylon. And that's what he does. This is the truth. What do I do with it? Now, the first thing that Babylon does 
is they kind of, to shift culture, is to change names. They try to change uh, Daniel and his three best friends' names. So, you know, names are, are very, very interesting. And this is what it says in verse 6. It says, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. You might know them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But they were four of the young men chosen, all from the tribe of Judah. The chief of staff renamed them with these Babylonian names. Daniel, which in Hebrew means God is my judge, was called Belshazzar, which in the language means Lord, protect the king. Hananiah was called Shadrach, Mishael was called Meshach, and Azariah was called Abednego. Now, for us, it's like, all right, so name change. Name changes are a huge deal in Eastern cultures, and names carry a lot of weight. It's very different here. We don't quite think the same way about names all the time, um, but names are all about identity, especially in that culture. For us today in a Western culture, um, since they don't carry the same weight, probably the best way to understand it is uh, titles. The titles that we carry and we work for make a big deal in our culture. And title changes are a pretty big deal, right? If you're awarded and you're inducted into the National Honor Society or you're the president of that club, the MVP of that team, you have the highest GPA, you're the, what do they call that person that gets the highest GPA? That, that yes, yeah, I didn't have the highest GPA. You're the valedictorian, and then I guess we get like first place, second, salatorian, or I don't know what they call them. You know what I'm saying. But the title's important to them because you want to put it on a resume. You want to get into college, and so you tout your, your titles. And then when we go to college, we're looking to add to our titles, aren't we? we? We try to earn as many little letters as we can to put at the end of our name or the beginning of our name. You know, you can get your BA, your MA, your MDiv, your, your doctorate, your reverend, your uh, PhD, ESQ or Esquire. You know, you could just pick a, pick a bunch of letters, put them at the end because they mean something, right? It's part of our title. It's our name. And then we do that so we can start working somewhere. And when we're working for somewhere, yes, we have the titles that are attached to our name, but now we want the qualifier of who we are at our work as our title. You know, when we start working, you know, like I want to work my way all the way up to the CEO or COO or CFO or the president of VP thing, you know, some titles I just, they're just sound made up, don't they? Do you ever look at LinkedIn when people are changing their titles and you're like, that's not a real thing. What does that even mean? It, it, it means nothing, but they want a title because a title shows you who I am and that I'm important. And I'm not just a manager, a shift manager, a team manager, a sales manager. I am a manager of managers. I'm Mr. Manager. You know, like, but titles carry this weight, don't they? And, and please hear me. I'm not saying titles are bad. Not at all. I think titles are great. I think titles help give a structure and an organization to work in. They're wonderful. But these titles, if we're not careful, can become our identity. They define who we are. And here's what Daniel understood about Babylon. Babylonian names and titles don't define who you are. God does. Babylonian names and titles don't define who you are. God does. Daniel's confidence as he's walking into this is not found in his new name that he's got. And we're going to see it over and over because his title changes a ton in this book. And he's almost always referred to by his Babylonian name from the Babylonians. His new name, he could have gotten this name, Lord Protect the King, gone home and been like, guys, listen, 
I got the name. Like, I, I was this guy before who it's like, all right, I'm fitting in. Here's my name. But now my new name means Lord, protect the king. Like, I'm going to be a protector of the king. Look, my title and my position is a little bit different. Look at who I am. So does he accept the name? Does he reject the name? He doesn't need it. It doesn't matter to him. He could take it or leave it. And not only did they try to change the names, but we often see that culture changes, even for especially the Jewish nation here, what they eat. This is where it gets real funky. Now, I know for some, it's like, oh, I would love to have the, the king's diet served to me, like from the king's kitchen. This is the best of the best. But it gets really tricky for these followers of Yahweh, these, these Jewish people, because the Torah has some pretty strict rules on what they can and they can't eat. And there's no little stamp of kosher that they're looking for as it comes down the line, right? That's not what it is. So there's clean food and then there's unclean food. And what the king puts before them Daniel understands, because he's in the culture now, and he understands it, that this is most likely, especially the meats, these are unclean food. Because most of the meat that would come through the palace for the king was the meat from the idol sacrifices that they would have for their worship. And so all of these gods are being worshipped. They're sacrificing all these animals, and it's like, sweet, prime rib is coming through all the time. It's because it was sacrificed to idols that it would be unclean, and so Daniel's in this tension, Right? What do I do with this? Have you ever been in that spot where your boss is offering you the best? Your teacher is extending this thing to you and you know that you should be grateful for it. You know that it's like, it's a good thing for them. But if you don't accept it, it's going to be highly offensive to them. What do you do? In Daniel's case, if he rejects all of this, this is like I told you, Nebuchadnezzar's live, die. This could cost him his life. What do you do when you're in a situation where Babylon asks you to do one thing and God commands another? Do you obey God or do you obey the authority? Oh, it just got reeled in. We have to ask this question. It's put in front of us all the time. But to be honest with you, I don't know if this is the best first question to ask in that situation. When leaders, teachers, bosses give an order that contradicts God's commands, the better question that we can ask is this. Lord, how do you want me to handle this? How do you want me to handle this? Instead of, do I obey you? Do I obey them? Like, who do I disappoint? God, Lord, how do you want me to handle this? Daniel doesn't want to disobey God. He doesn't want to offend his bosses. He's been told to pray for the peace and prosperity of the nation, right? He can't be in this place where, like, he can't expect Babylon to know about his rules because they don't follow the same God that he follows. So why would he be like, you know, you guys got to adhere to my rules. I can't eat that. I can't. Like, it's, it's against my religion. No, dude, dude, they're hooking you up with education everything. You do this. And the truth is for all of us, we can't expect people around us who don't know God to obey his commands or celebrate them. We can't expect that. That's ridiculous of us to think that. So we need to ask, Lord, how do you want me to handle this? And this is what happens in verse 8. But Daniel was determined not to defile himself by eating the food and the wine given to him by the king. And he asked the chief of the staff for permission 
not to eat these unacceptable foods. Now, God had given the chief of staff both respect and affection for Daniel, but he responded, I'm afraid of my lord the king, who has ordered that you eat this food and mine. If you become pale and thin compared to the other youths your age, I'm afraid the king will have me beheaded. Do you see the extreme? But there's something we learn about Babylon in here. And there's something we learn about how David handled himself. Daniel starts by going to the chief of staff, which is one of the keys to thriving in Babylon. We need to seek private meetings and ask for permission in these situations not to participate. We need to, to seek private meetings and ask for permission, not demand anything. He, he tries to resolve this problem privately, peacefully. He doesn't make a scene. He doesn't demand that everything be changed to meet his needs. And, and I'll just tell you, when you do that, and when I do that, if we go into somewhere demanding things, a good rule of thumb in Babylon is don't force the king to prove that he's the king. Don't put a king in a situation where he's got to prove his power. It'll never work in your favor, ever. And we do this all the time. It's, you need to do this, or, or, or here's the ultimatum. Man, that's, that's not it. They'll let you know that they rule the roost. They'll let you know that they're an authority. Believe me. What we need to do is to keep things respectful, to keep things confidential. Daniel listens to the chief one-to-one, -one, and things like this happen all the time at school. You're frustrated with your teachers? Don't bring that to your lunch table or your sports team. Don't do that. You're frustrated with your coaches? Fine. Don't bring it to your team. Bring it to your coach. Bring it to your teacher. You're frustrated with your manager or your boss? Don't bring it to your, you know, coworkers. Bring it to your boss. Bring it to your manager. Go one-to-one -to, -one to begin with. Handle it privately. And when we handle it privately, what I love is that Daniel shows us he learns something about the chief of staff here. You know, when we've got teachers and bosses, I think for us as employees, as students, if we could be sensitive to our bosses and teachers' needs and what they're, the situation that they're in and understand where they're coming from, that can be an unbelievable position to be an influence for Jesus. What a witness we could have when we say we care about where you're starting. And the chief of staff, it's like, listen, if you don't put it together, if you look pale and you don't look like them, it's done. I'm out. I'm dead. So, nope. He refused. Even though he respected him, he refused. You see, Babylon's allowed to refuse our requests. But Daniel didn't freak out. He didn't go over his head. Instead, he went a rung down the ladder to the attendant who was overseeing him. And in verse 11, it says, Daniel spoke to the attendant who had been appointed by the chief of staff to look after Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And so he goes to this attendant. He says, please test us for 10 days on a diet of vegetables and water, Daniel said. At the end of the 10 days, see how we look compared to the other young men who are eating the king's food, and then make your decision in light of what you see. The attendant agreed to Daniel's suggestion and tested them for 10 days. He goes to him, your boss is concerned that we look like everybody else. They want us to make, they want to make sure we're not pale, we're not gaunt, we're not thin, that we're keeping up with everybody else. That's the concern, right? Yep, that's the concern. So let's, let's do a little test. For 10 days, me and my boys, we're going to go with just vegetables and water. If it's cool with you, 
and it's only a 10-day test, and then at the end of the 10 days, you can make your call. Because if we don't look like them, right, you're called. But if we do, then we're cool, and like, like we can do this. Isn't that awesome? He goes to him, and he learned to speak the language of Babylon. Do you know what the language of Babylon is? Results. I could care less how you get to the end. I just need to make sure that you're not falling behind everybody else because I need you educated, I need you strong, I need you to stay good-looking because we want to have a good-looking posse here up top, right, serving the king. You want to roll up, and they're like, wow, they look good. So I can't have you losing weight. I can't have you losing muscle mass. I can't have any of that. All right, cool. If the results are the same, shouldn't matter how we get there, right? All right, I'll give you 10 days. And that's exactly what happens. He knew what they were looking for, and it worked. The proof at the end of the 10 days was right in front of this attendant. He's like, all right, cool. I highly doubt that anyone else in the entire class that they were in knew what was going on. Do you know why? They didn't need to. It didn't matter. The results are what matter to Babylon. Why? Because even a pagan king knows quality when they see it. You see, Daniel's confidence in the Lord wasn't shaped or shaken by the circumstances he found himself in. A name change, being exiled, food changes. He came from a culture where faith was the center, even if it wasn't celebrated in Jerusalem. It still mattered. And he left that crumbling nation now to a nation that was going to give him everything. God allowed Nebuchadnezzar to come in to destroy it. And when he was taken, I doubt in their little area that they were reading scripture every day together. I doubt that they had times to pray together in their little exiled pocket of people in Babylon. There weren't the traditional religious ceremonies that happened on the Sabbath because the truth is the people in Babylon could care less about their one true God. They had plenty of gods to worship. They lived in a pagan nation under a pagan king who didn't care. So what did they do? Exactly what God told them to do. Put your roots down. Build your house. Get married, start your family. And I want you to work so hard for that nation. I want you to work hard for the peace of that nation, for the prosperity of that nation, and I want you to pray for the authorities and for the nation that you're in because when they succeed, you succeed. Did they start planning a rebellion and uprising? Did they start with a strategy about how they could change the culture over the next decade to make it more moral, to match us? Did they start preparing to flee Babylon because, you know what, maybe we can find a more Jewish-friendly country a little bit north. Did they do any of that? No. They listened to God, they planted their roots, and they started working towards peace and prosperity. You see, you can't force the nation that you're in, you can't force a Babylon to follow God. And God doesn't force people to follow him either. He doesn't force people to worship him. He doesn't force people to, to pursue him. That's Babylon. That's what Babylon does. Babylon forces people to do things. God does not force people to follow him. And as followers of Jesus today, I just want to say, I, I recognize we don't match our culture. The things that Jesus says to us about loving our enemies about sacrificing what we have for others, about loving the community that's around us, about obeying the government that is over us. There are so many things that Jesus says 
that do not match the way our Babylon looks, the way that our country or our state or our county or our town looks. The values are so different to give up rather than to gain. I don't think, I don't think we've done a really good job as followers of Jesus for praying for the prosperity of our nation, for praying for the peace and being agents of peacemaking. Honestly, I think we've been more divisive. I think we spend more of our time in the world trying to tell people to obey God when we're not even doing that ourselves. We complain and we criticize our teachers, our bosses, our leaders, just like the rest of the world does. Sometimes I'd argue we're even louder than the world. We strive for bigger and more influential titles because we think it's going to give us more influence when I get to that place. It's funny as the more folks I walk with through promotions, the quieter they seem to be, the higher they get about their faith. Power is not always the right thing to be pursuing in a title. And what really kills me is when followers of Jesus get so scared of the culture that we live in right now that we try to completely remove ourselves from it. We pull ourselves out of every place that could have some sort of contact with the world. I can't be influenced by that. I can't be around that. I gotta protect my kids. I gotta protect my family. I gotta protect myself. And we completely miss the call that, that Paul says to us in 2 Corinthians when he writes to the church and he says, you're ambassadors for Christ. That's who you are. Do you know what ambassadors do? Like an ambassador for the United States to a certain nation or region goes to that region, goes to that nation on behalf of our nation, and they don't go in and high-five people and leave. Do you know what they do? They go there and they live there. They, they get into their house and they say, we are going to make this home and advocate for this country while I'm here because I can't negotiate anything if I don't understand your culture and your people. If I don't speak your language, I'm not an ambassador. And as ambassadors for Christ, this is what we need to do. We are not called to run from the world. We are called to engage with it. In order to be a solid ambassador, we got to put down some roots. we got to learn this language. And most of all, I'm begging you, if you follow Jesus, would you help me be an agent of peace? Would you pray for peace and the prosperity of our nation so that we would see the nation succeed, not for our own benefit, because it's what God calls us to do as followers of Jesus. If you find yourself on the side of divide, where when you speak up, you're putting people on this side or that side, this is not the way of Jesus. We should be the bridges. We should be the peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers, is what Jesus says. Not peacekeepers, makers. Let's go and work so hard so hard that people are like, what is it about these people that they work so hard? Oh, that's those followers of Jesus, man, because he says work hard for your boss like they're working for him. Man, we got to hire more people like that because they just hustle. What if that was our story? Prosperous, let's be the people who thrive in Babylon because we work for peace. We work for unity. We don't ever have to compromise on what Jesus says, but we can in every situation stop and ask, Lord, how do you want me to handle this one? Because every time, it'll be different. So how do you look in Babylon right now? How are you holding up? 
Where do you need help? Where do you need to speak up? Where do you need to shut up? Where do we as a church, as a community, need to encourage each other and work towards peace? This is the way of Jesus. This is how we thrive in Babylon.